0: Recorded a couple weeks ago, and pretty much unanimously, everybody who heard it said to drop the script, and because most of the people who have listened to it are clients, former clients, who are now out of treatment, who have heard me talk in class, and my classes are never scripted. Um, So today I got my old man with us, and most of you know I've I've talked about him often in class. He was a criminal defense attorney for almost 40 years and practiced personal injury law after that. In uh, 1979, it was Durin versus Missouri. My dad argued in front of the Supreme Court. It was against John Ashcroft, right? And my second chair was Ruth Ginsburg. Yeah, so today we'll talk about a few things. Most Specifically, why he's a weirdo and he's never struggled in his life with anything. And uh, we'll probably talk about money and where to put it and what to do with it and all that stuff. So, uh, without further ado, let's let my pops, Lee Nation, uh, talk about himself a little bit.
1: I have uh, a degree in economics. I actually taught university finance at Northern Arizona University in in Flagstaff, uh, both undergraduate and graduate school. That's a little part of my resume that kind of gets missed. It's an an interesting thing. I I graduated from law school when I was 22 and argued in the United States Supreme Court when I was 25. Now, most people think that I'm highly motivated. I've never thought that that was the case. I've never thought about having a career. Um, In a lot of ways, I've done what I wanted to do. And in a sense, that generally turns out all right, as long as you have actually some good goals in your life. So...
0: if you were never motivated, I, I often talk about this, some people misconstrue what motivation actually means. They think they're waking up every day and thinking themselves into acting right. And I, I don't think you've ever really had to do that. However, motivation to me means to provide a reason why. And so if you weren't motivated, what was your reason for doing anything? And I, I actually thought that you argued in front of the Supreme Court when you were 27, but 25 is even crazier. 25, I was just not even, basically a year out of rehab. So I always talk about this, that you not you didn't deliberately obviously cast any shadow on me, but me consciously and probably unconsciously never lived up to
1: what you did. I've I've thought about motivation a lot, and I've never considered myself motivated. But if if you look at certain things, and I've always wondered about this, you'll see it in the Olympics. And it's very often figure skaters, women figure skaters, will be, oh, she's the third best women's figure skater in the United States. And she took a year off Harvard Medical School to compete in the Olympics. And, oh, by the way, she's a concert pianist. And there are people like that that are multi-faceted talents. Now, it takes a certain gift to do certain of those things, but a lot of it is just how much you do of it, how much you practice. Uh, I can remember George Gervin, who led the NBA in scoring for several years in a row. They asked him why why he was almost 99% from the free throw line. And he said, for most of my life, I've shot a 1,000 free throws a day. And you think about that, a 1,000 free throws a day, forever. And that's to be the best free throw shooter in the world. That's what he wanted to be, and he understood that's what it took. You hear musicians will talk, and they're they're. Their teacher will tell them, try to practice a half an hour a day. And there's a lot of musicians that are good at it that will practice three hours a day. Yeah, and I talk about that a lot. In
0: fact, I think a lot of people will call it motivational judo. Instead of saying, I need to practice two hours a day of something, you know, because and and I'll use this to kind of segue into my next question. Instead of practicing two hours a day on something, or even working out for an hour a day, in the beginning, just tell yourself you're gonna do it for two minutes. Because what that'll do is it will get you in, and it will make your body more, and your mind get into more of a pattern of actually doing it, you know? So instead of saying, I need to wake up and work out for 45 minutes, you say, I need to wake up and work out for 10, or five, or two, because a lot of times that two minutes will turn into 10, and that 10 minutes will turn into 20 and 30. I have a goal for myself every day to read at least 10 pages of any book, whatever I'm reading. Half the time that 10 pages turns into 100, or sometimes it's just 10 pages, but at least I'm doing something. So my next question is, and I framed it in this way because a lot of people are saying, well, these people are just different, right? These people, do you think that people who are successful are biologically different, or you know, organically have more of a chance to be different, or do you think it's just people who've gotten less distracted in life, so they use their time and invest their time in things that are actually worth worth investing their time in?
1: I don't know. The I'll give you a, a recent example of mine. Uh, I am almost 67. So being that age, you read articles on what's good for you and things like that. And I read an article once that said that people my age should walk 150 minutes a week. Now, I thought about that and thought, okay, well, that's like 30 minutes a day, five days a week. That's not that big a deal. And it also said it doesn't have to be simultaneous. Simultaneous. So I'd start out, and a lot of times I'd do this. I'd go outside, and I'd start walking. I'd say, well, I said, "Well, I'll get five minutes in." And after five minutes, I'd think, "Well, gee, I can go further than this." And it ended up to where, really, in like I don't know, it's less than a month, I was walking two, three hours a day, and. I don't know what causes that. One of the things that that I think when people begin to, to spend a lot of time practicing anything, they get better at it and it's more self-satisfying and they get a lot of positive feedback from themselves on how they can do things. And it keeps them going. Right. And I kind
0: of say that... in. A lot of things. The way I, the way I describe confidence, and this will lead into my next question too, is self trust. You know, if, if you're confident, it doesn't mean you're better than anybody. It means, you know, you trust yourself to do what you say you're going to do. So I always say, you know, it, it, if you don't have confidence, it's because for so long you've been telling yourself you're not going to, or you're going to quit using drugs, or you've told yourself you're going to quit smoking, or you told yourself you're going to work out every day. And you do it for a week, you know, two weeks, and then quit, and therefore your confidence is low. So what, in your eyes, what is your superpower? And I think I know the answer to that is extreme confidence. And do you think that is something you were born with, or it was the way you were raised, or or do you think it's just the fact that you've never
1: given up? I think it's the fact that I've never given up. And the answer is, yeah, I have an incredible amount of confidence. I believe I can do anything. Now, obviously, I can't play in the NBA. Um, I'm too old. I'm too short. I'm not fast enough. And I don't shoot that well. And I grew up in Canada. And you're not black. (laughs) And I'm not black. So that's all out. But, you know, some of the rest (laughs) of it, and I actually, seriously, I have to rein in my confidence. I have to sometimes think, am I taking on, am I assuming I can do more than I can? Um, that's not often. But one of the things that you always have to look at in terms of any decision you make, there's sort of, there, there's sort of two competing interests here. There's risk and reward. What are you risking and what are you expecting to get out of it? And then there is cost-benefit. And both of those little measurements are measurements as to why you do what you do, whether you should do what you do, and whether or not it's going to be beneficial. Uh, when I did Durin versus Missouri, a lot of people told me that, oh, this, this was going to turn out very bad for you, essentially standing up against the system at a young age, and as a practical matter, I didn't care. And I couldn't see any downside. I mean, what? what's the difference? So I lose a case. Um, now, the cost benefit or the risk reward, I thought was incredibly positive. It still amazes me that more people don't do things like that. But one of the things that's really oh. interesting in, in law is a lot of those sort of landmark cases are done by very young lawyers and it's because they see something that they think they can change and they go after it and older lawyers don't they think it'll take too much time or i i I don't know what the fear is but that's kind of the risk reward and the cost benefit are things you should consider and a lot of times the perception of cost or the perception of risk just isn't there
0: Right, and I was going to ask you what success is to you and what what came to mind when you're talking about that was was some Warren Buffett talks about. You know, he says he says everybody is looking at the external scorecard too much or listening to people who are looking at the external scorecard too much when in fact what actually matters is your own internal scorecard. You know, so success to me is living up to the rules I set for myself on a day-to-day basis, right? Like I have to do certain things every day. And no matter what happens externally, because a lot of that stuff I can't control, it doesn't matter to me. What matters is what I do and what I can control. So with that said, what what is success
1: to you? It's funny you mentioned that. And, and in talking to you, I don't think I've ever said this before. When I was in high school... And you get a lot of people asking, friends of your parents or grown-ups or teachers, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it's kind of a play that I always say, I want to be happy. And then they'd ask the obvious, well, don't you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a scientist or an astronaut? And I always say, instead of being happy, no, I'd rather be happy. Now, what happy means to people is obviously a different thing. But everybody knows things that they do that make them unhappy about themselves and things they do that makes them happy about themselves. And you can't control all of your life to where there's going to be no pain and suffering or no no problems. But you can certainly avoid the bad things that are going to make, that you know, you absolutely know are going to make you unhappy and do things that are going to make you happy. Right. And I mentioned this a lot, uh, you
0: know, because a lot of guys and girls for that matter who are in treatment, the problem is what makes them happy is what they're doing. And that's giving them, you know, insane consequences. And I think that's not measuring that risk versus reward. And I also think that, you know, that's, uh, for me, I never tell people to chase happiness because then we have to define what's happy, you know, and a lot of these people don't know what happiness is. And as a, as a human, I think if you read any history or look at how we evolve, for me, human beings have this deeply ingrained reward system in their mind. You know, uh, you know for, the, for the majority of our evolution, we woke up every day and we got shit done so that at the end of the day we could fall asleep and feed our family and that's what made us feel good you know and i think we have that that ancient brain now and it's in a it's in a new world and people are getting really confused at what happiness is you know so to you what would happiness what is happiness
1: The, um, one of the interesting concepts in economics, philosophy, things like that, is, is the John Stuart Mill utilitarian idea of the greatest good for the greatest number. And that all sounds like a pretty simple calculus, except for the fact that nobody can define what is good or what makes people happy at any given point uh Is the greatest good for the greatest number? It, is it beneficial to life that Hitler and the vast majority of Germans decided to kill six million Jews? Therefore, that would be moral. That's absolutely absurd. But it leads to things like that, and I understand what Dylan is saying about a lot of people that are in in uh, that have drug problems or alcohol problems. What makes them happy is treating whatever problems they have with some sort of substance and that makes them feel better than they felt before i've never really had that problem i actually a friend of mine and i once decided that after we drank after basically every night we went down to the bar and drank four or five beers or ten beers or whatever it was we decided to figure out whether or not we were alcoholics so we decided not to drink any beer now we both still went to the bars every night and we sat around and did the same bar stuff, talked to people, hustled girls, things, all that kind of stuff. But we never had a drink. And what we figured out was we were probably addicted to bars. We weren't necessarily <laughs> addicted to alcohol at all. That had nothing to do with it. Um, so, and I, I'm sure there's a certain camaraderie with drinking and drugs and things like that where you're around peers that sort of validate Uh, Your experience and make you feel better about yourself when you ought to feel like what am I doing? Why am I doing this?
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest the biggest issues is that who we're around shapes what we value you know, if we're constantly around people who are are doing you know drugs and drinking and we're watching them you know, we will we'll tend to value the same things as them. You know, I don't remember who exactly says it, but you're the average of the five, five people you put yourself around. You know, I think that's a big issue today with social media. And most of you guys know, those of you who I've taught, that I haven't been on any social media in, in four years. You know, I think happiness is almost something you, you learn to be. You know, it, it's like so many of us get addicted to saying we're not happy. And there's a benefit to saying you're not happy, especially if you're on any kind of social media because then a bunch of people, you know, get on social media and tell you how great you are, you know, because you're proclaiming that you're unhappy. You know, if you wake up every day, instead of waking up on accident and you wake up on purpose and you're not paying attention to all these other people's lives, you tend to get a little bit happier. You know, the problem with a lot of this social media is that people are putting their life out there and we're watching it, and we think that it makes them happy. The problem is they're not putting the things that are wrong with their life on there. So when we're on social media and we watch these people live their lives, we, we pick up all these unconscious desires, whether it be materialism or all, all these other things. And when we have so many desires, desires like a contract you make with yourself that you will not be happy until you get whatever it is that you desire, you know? And I think that the more you do that, the more you get addicted to that way of thinking and you think that you live in lack because of the people you put yourself around, you know? um, I think this is why it's so important. What is your environment like? It's one of the things in recovery that's so highly controllable that we can control our environment, you know? And if we look at the latest research on our genes and addiction, We know that 40 to 60% of addiction, you know, of you being an addict is determined by your genes and how they function within your environment. So, if 40 to 60% of your issue is due to your genes, the other 40, 60% is due to your environment. So, basically, how are you setting up your environment and what unconscious desires are you picking up? With that said, though, what if we're going to talk about investing time and energy? What are some of the best investments you've made monetarily and with time, you know, and with energy?
1: Well, I, you know, being a lawyer, uh, being a trial lawyer, more than anything else, I've spent a lot of time actually practicing what I was going to do. And much more so than... Uh, a lot of people think, well, a lot of lawyers will walk into a courtroom. They will have a yellow pad with a speech written on it or cross-examination questions or something like that. And I always think that's incredibly limiting. It is not It is not particularly theatrical. It's not very powerful. And you miss a whole lot of things. So I will try to practice what I want to do. Over and over and over again. Uh, in terms of. And, and I've done that. With all of my life. It's it's almost like I have an obsessive compulsive. Desire to succeed. And I don't know where that comes from. It's it's winning. That's what it's about. Uh, financially one of the things. And, and I, I don't know if we're. I'm going to have time in this podcast or maybe another one. But one of the things that's exceedingly important that people don't realize at all is virtually everyone in America can become rich. Not, and this is not a, you know, this is from an economics professor and a guy that taught investing at, at NAU. Uh, it is the, And I don't know where it comes from. I I would ask this question, how many people think the economy is bad or good? And all the Democrats will say, well, the economy is terrible. And I've always thought, you know, what world are you living in? I mean, I have looked at employment statistics and GDP growth and things like that, those sorts of statistics, every year for the last 50 years. I mean, this may not be the greatest time in the history of economics, but we have more jobs in America than we have people looking for jobs. How can anyone possibly say the economy isn't any good? But people fall into that. They'll listen to that. They'll hear that on TV. And all of a sudden, they'll get down and they'll think, well, this is like, this is horrible. This is the end of the world. I said, no good for me. How many times have you heard the rich get all the money? And unless you're rich, you're screwed. I've heard that from all sorts of people. It just is not true. Look around your life and think, look at Bentonville, Arkansas. Look at all the houses here. Do you realize what this was 25 years ago, 30 years ago? And think, how many people that are really well-off, upper middle class, live here? And, And why is that? Obviously, the answer is probably Walmart. But the point of all of that is you'll have a lot of people telling you you can't succeed And that you need the government to help you, or whatever it is, or you buy into it and decide to give up. Giving up is the worst thing you can ever do in terms of anything. Um, Dylan will tell you this. I, I always told my kids that the greatest thing, the greatest thing I could teach them was stamina. Don't give up, don't give in keep going in one direction and keep working towards it. And sooner or later you get there.
0: Yeah. And Steve Martin talks
1: about that, you know, or
0: he used to, was that uh, persistence is the best substitute for talent. Um, Yeah. Not giving up. I, I think a lot of people, it's very easy to, I always say, if you do what is easy, life will be hard. And if you do what is hard, life will be easy. I think it's very easy to say the economy's bad and that's why I don't have, you know, what everybody else has or, you know, what the people I'm looking at have. You know, that's the biggest problem is, you know, we're watching other people who have more than us and we think they're happier than us. When in reality, they're probably not. You know, they did a study um, of people who won the lottery and people who became paraplegic. And they measured their happiness Right when they became either won the lottery or became paraplegic, and then they measured their happiness a year later. And both of them returned to their baseline levels of happiness. You know, so happiness, I don't, I, I, I think happiness is a very common um, thing that people want to achieve, but they don't really understand what it is because happiness isn't a lack of problems. You know, a lot of people that we think are happy, whether it be the CEOs of companies, it's not that they don't have problems. They, got, they have way more problems than, than we do. They're just different kinds of problems. And I, I don't even think problems exist. You know, what you don't focus on doesn't exist. A problem only exists when you give it attention. I mean, and they only exist in time. You know, they can only exist in the past and future. You know, a problem needs to be labeled a problem before it can even exist. So so I think the way we think and what we tell ourselves is one of the biggest problems. You know, Tony Robbins says this. He said, our biggest problem is thinking we shouldn't have problems. You know, problems are what, what make us grow. Problems are what challenge us to be better. Problems are what come up in our lives and say, this, you need to change something. Um. So with that said, I think the next recording we'll get into in about five minutes. Or I don't know if it will be in the next podcast or if we can add it on to the back of this one, but
1: I know we have to stop recording in five minutes. Um, I wanted to say something about problems. And, and one of the things that that I have always thought in essence was sort of an early on plus for me, was that I was a criminal defense lawyer. Now, most people don't understand what that means. They think maybe, oh, it's being Matlock or something or winning all your cases or finding the, the trick that gets your guy off. And the answer is no. Most of the time, it's hideous, horrible situations that you're having to deal with. It's as if all of the stress and pain in the world, is exhibited in things that I see every day. And I've told people this. I don't know. I doubt that any of you have ever witnessed a death penalty sentencing. I have. I've stood beside my client and had the judge say, as to count one, I sentence you to death, and may God have mercy on your soul. (laughs) Now think about that. Think about... Oh, so I go home, and I forgot to take the, uh, the, the steak out of the freezer for dinner. And I think, oh, well, at least nobody sentenced me to death today. Or the victims are the same thing. I mean, I've had people rolled into courtrooms in, on gurneys because somebody drank and drove and ran a red light and destroyed their life. And you do compartmentalize those things, but it does give you a real scale as to what's, what's painful and what isn't, what's stressful and what isn't. And uh, I I don't know if that affected me later on to not worry about things. I mean, I kind of worry about big things. Is anybody I know going to die? And that's pretty much all there is to it. Other than that, you know, I don't know what I don't know what to worry about.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, Gary Vaynerchuk actually talks about that a lot. He says, aside from the health of my family and very close friends, I'm in 100% control of my life. He says, no matter what happens to me, everything in my life, my business, my happiness, my emotions—it's all on me. And what happens? with that, which essentially is accountability, is you get real fucking happy. You get happy that no one else can control you and what you do. You know, it's, it, it's incredibly important, you know, like my dad said, was is to compartmentalize these issues, you know. He, he has a scale. I think a lot of us live in our own little bubble. We don't know, you know, there's an old... Uh, uh, an old saying, what gets measured gets managed. And I always say that when, you know, when you have a problem, can measure it on a scale of one to 10, because if it's a four, then immediately your brain gets to imagine what a 10 is, you know, and that will give you perspective right then. So with that said, I don't know if this is going to be in the next podcast or I'm just going to add it onto the next, but if it is, if this ends now, uh, go ahead and click on the next podcast. If not, we'll be back on here in uh, no time. All right, we're back. Uh, we we're kind of just talking about compartmentalizing, and I know that was probably your uh, answer to what my next question is going to be. What what do you do in life uh, when you feel overwhelmed? Um, and for me, that, that pretty much is compartmentalizing. Uh, and really, I didn't know that's what it was until... Uh, I sat down to think about it. What I normally do is when I'm upset about something, I refocus on something else that I can control, you know, like a a lot of stuff in work with work with the last year has been a shit show. And it's really been the hardest time I've ever had working anywhere. Uh, but the one thing I tell myself all the time, no matter what I feel is that it's making me better as long as I don't quit. Um, and and then I refocus on something else that I care about in my life, like working out. If, if I'm struggling at work and, you know, I'm not the boss, certain things aren't in my control, I'll refocus and, and I'll write a new workout plan. Because what you focus on, you feel. You know, if I get into a workout plan and I start, you know, setting new goals, I feel those goals and I forget about the other things that I'm not thinking about. So... If compartmentalizing is something that you do to help yourself when you do feel overwhelmed,
1: what is compartmentalizing to you? And that's sort of the same thing. Compartmentalizing is not thinking about the things that cause you difficulty or that you can't change. Obviously, sometimes you have problems that are going to come and get you. Um, and obviously you need to think about those things, but you don't need to think about those things immediately. One of the things that I've learned over trying cases and, and being involved in cases and controversies, most of my adult life is that if there was something bad on the horizon and I thought about it for a while, I'd stop and I think about other stuff. And maybe I'd think about it again the next day or the day after that. And what's funny about that is at some point, always, always, there would be a solution. And sometimes it would just pop into your head. Why don't I do this? Why don't I try that? And then you start thinking about what you might do in response to whatever that problem is. A lot of times when you first see a problem, you can't think of anything except all the negative, bad things that can happen. Uh, but sometimes given a day or two break on it, it opens your mind to the possibility of perhaps winning strategies or things that that can help you get through it.
0: Right, I always say if, if you're struggling emotionally or, or you're trying to a problem comes up in life, wait, you know, for me, if if I'm getting highly emotional, especially at work, where what I say really matters, and at home, um, but more so at work, because people at home forgive me more, and I can't really get fired from home. uh, I stop. I don't trust myself when I get emotional. To me, that is a cue to shut my mouth. You know, my sponsor said early on, he said, it's better to sit there and look stupid than than open your mouth and prove it. Uh, And um, that's when we look stupid is when we're emotional, you know, and and often when reflecting on those emotional situations, we regret it and we feel stupid and we know that we uh, magnified the problem. You know, evolutionarily it was, it was beneficial to magnify our problems. It was beneficial to be pessimistic because we needed to protect ourselves constantly. But now, now we don't. And protecting ourselves normally now is, is hurting ourselves. Um, so when we say stuff like refocus on something else, you have to understand that if you've never refocused on something else because of the way you were raised or circumstances or you just haven't practiced it much, it's not going to fix it right away. You have to start practicing. Okay, I'm emotional. I'm going to think about something else. And then over time, in a month or two months or three months, you'll be way better at compartmentalizing. This isn't just something that works right away. This is something you practice. You know, so, so in talking about work, brings up another one of my questions. And I liked your answer yesterday when we talked about this. What's the best way you found in life to deal with difficult people.
1: This has been my answer for decades. I take their money. And that sounds very cavalier, but basically, if you think about difficulties in my life, have always been about people that wanted to somehow hurt me or somehow wanted to take my money. And it was actually fairly easy as a lawyer to do things like that is to say, okay, well, i can I can punish you somehow. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean you do it because a lot of times it just doesn't seem worth it. Uh, but it is a it's kind of a fallback position that makes you feel like this person doesn't have anything on on you. One of the things Dylan mentioned, and um, said it's better to look stupid than to prove you're stupid by saying something. The vast majority of people, and I think there's research that bears me out, is that people who in conversations appear quiet, who don't say anything, who smile and acknowledge what someone said and just sit there, everyone thinks they know that that person knows the answer. He just isn't telling you. And it's as if all of a sudden you've raised your IQ 20 points simply because you've kept your mouth shut. Instead of saying "uh," duh, you know, stumbling through something, even if you stumble through the right answer, it may very uh, it may very well be that people assume that you have the right answer and give you credit for that, whereas you probably didn't know anything about it. And I love that answer. You
0: take their money, you know, because whether you think about it literally or not, that's what I do. I mean, obviously, the people I struggle with. You know, whether it be at work or just in life in general, I'm not taking their money, but what I'm doing is I'm telling myself, you'll see, just wait, just wait, you'll see, I'll prove myself, you know, and and, and it motivates me, it almost puts a chip on my shoulder, like, yeah, you're in charge now, negativity leads at halftime, but kindness always wins. No matter what, you know, and whenever I deal with negative people, I always think about this Epictetus quote. And one thing you need to know about Epictetus, and I know if I've taught you or you've been in my classes at all, I've talked about Epictetus. Um, Epictetus was a slave. In fact, we don't even actually know what his name is because Epictetus literally means owned property. Um, but he has a quote, if a person gave away your body to some passerby you'd be furious, yet you hand over your mind to anyone who comes along so they may abuse you, leaving it disturbed and troubled. Have you no shame in that? You know, in other words, you'd be really pissed if somebody came and kidnapped you. Yet, every time somebody bothers you, you get emotional and you let them have your mind, and you don't even get upset about that, meaning you don't direct... You know, your attention on the fact that you're letting that problem be a problem by acknowledging it at all. You know, and I think in treatment and in recovery, there's so many people who are coming from that culture and they want to be the tough guy. You know, they want to that. It's this weird righteousness thing, you know, and and we deal with it in treatment all the time. Whenever somebody thinks somebody stole something, everybody in class. And I know if you've been in treatment, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I literally dealt with it two days ago somebody loses their stuff and then inevitably one person stands up and says, listen, we're going through everybody's room and we're going to, you know, and you think you're righteous because you think somebody stole it. But again, you don't know the whole scenario. You don't know everything going on. And you're not righteous if you're wrong, you know, because what normally happens is whatever it was that you think is stolen is just lost and you're wrong. So you and I, you look stupid, you know, you, you have to let this these things you have to slow down in a moment and let wait till you see every side till you actually know what's going on and just don't give it energy if you can't control it and it's another person just don't just don't give them energy don't let them have space in your mind you know uh, there's a common saying in, in in recovery and 12-step programs is you're letting people rent space in your head uh and, and you can't be doing that so What's the best advice you can give to somebody who's starting over? And I think the best thing I can say, you know, because I probably know your answer and I, I think money is the number one thing that people want to talk about. And of course, coming from where we come from is we want to make money quickly. Um, and that's just not happening. In fact, I, I call it now appeal and a lot of people Drug addicts have a really hard time with now appeal. They will get whatever they want now. And their mind is so focused on the now that they don't even, they don't have any energy to think about future consequences. So when you get out of treatment or you're starting your life over, what's the best advice you have for someone who
1: really has to just go get a job? Well, once you get a job, and you know, I'll go from that point on, because, like right now, i I perceive this to be true. It's virtually impossible for people
0: not to get a job. Yeah, that nobody nobody coming out of treatment struggles getting a job. I mean, in this area, and that's the only frame of reference I have to work with, no one here struggles getting a job. I've seen thousands of people go through treatment. I just had my my best friend in the world who has a conviction for felony armed robbery, who's now working in Nashville making 50 grand a year doing construction. And so many people will say, Well, I'm a felon, this, that. Listen, I've seen a thousand people go through treatment. No one is ever not able to get a job when they get out of treatment. So we're just gonna start there. Assume you have a job, you know, and if you don't have a job, you better be your job should be finding a job. Eight hours a day. That's what you should be doing is looking for a job. You know, I came out here in 2013. I have never spent time looking for a job here. In fact, if today I figured out I wasn't working where I was working, I know for a fact tomorrow I would have a job. So let's assume right now you get out of treatment. You're listening to this. You have a job.
1: What do you do now? Okay, one one other caveat to that. One of the things that is significant about the time now as opposed to other times. There are times when there is unemployment. There are times when it is hard to find a job. And there are places in the United States right now where it's hard to find a job. Not here in northwest Arkansas, but in Detroit or in the inner city of Chicago or places like that. And it always astounded me why people would live in some place where there was high unemployment, High crime, bad this, bad that. And they wouldn't even consider moving. I mean, if I were a poor kid, black kid in Chicago with not a high school degree, I would be working anywhere I could to get 500 bucks so I could buy a bus ticket to the Permian Basin. Uh, I'd be an oil worker. I mean, even if you can't get on there, you can get a job at McDonald's for probably $25 an hour. Because there are so many jobs there. And that's always going to be true somewhere. Uh, In my life, I was born in western Kansas. My parents moved to Canada. My parents moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma. My parents moved to Chicago. It was all about having a job. And the idea that, well, you're from somewhere, so you've got to stay there forever, or you have connections here, whatever it is. You know, don't fall for that. Go get a job. Now, having a job, here's one of the things that that people that satisfies people and gives them comfort in their lives is to be financially secure and independent. And you're this is time for what I've always called the speech. I've given this in high schools, I've given it in college, every class I've ever taught. I've given it every core I've worked. And I don't know, I've probably had 25 people stop me on the street that I don't even recognize say, you changed my life. And that's all I get out of this. This is not selling a program or telling you to take this course or that course. It's actually really simple. Anybody can do it. It's so simple that you <laughs> failure is non-existent and that is use of the financial markets. Uh, One of the things that I always brag about in terms of financial markets is it's complete, look, is there race in, in America? Sure. Is there in the financial markets? Nope. They don't care. They don't care if you're black, white, green, yellow, transgender, gay, you know, Martian. It makes no difference whatsoever. It's all about how much money there is and how much money you can make. And making money is not hard. They, the Wall Street Journal used to do this. I don't know if they still do it. Every first of the year, they would have a monkey pick stocks. And they would compare the monkey's pick to the big shots on Wall Street. You know, the ones that are on TV, oh, they run this fund or that fund, and they had a real good year. And the monkeys would always win. The guy who started... Uh, Fidelity and Vanguard, Vanguard, I guess, Jack Bogle, has always said, look, here's the deal. Invest in the S&P 500. That's the 500 largest stocks in the United States. Just invest in it. Every chance you get, invest your money there. Because the number of people that can beat the S&P 500 is incredibly narrow. Now, I usually do by about a percent. I spend 50 hours a week trying to do that Um, i have it so that if if i die or anything else everybody knows to just forget about that and buy the s p 500 and not worry about it that will net you returns of whether you count dividends or not eight to ten nine to eleven percent per year historically and if you don't know what that means you're not thinking about compounding interest. In other words, what it means over time to have that kind of return. I, some people know this. Uh, if you take a coin, a penny, and double it every day for a month, you realize you'll have over a million dollars. And most people think that's absolutely outrageously can't possibly be true until they sit down with a calculator and do it. And that's because every day you're getting interest or you're getting a gain on what your gain was the day before. So the magic of compounding is basically this. If you say, I ran these numbers last week thinking about this. If you save $22 a week, $22 a week for the next 40 years, you'll have a million dollars. And if you put it in a stock fund, uh, you'll have over a million bucks. And you think, well, I can't afford $22 a week. He said, of course you can. What is that? I mean, do you smoke? That's <laughs> like two pa- three packs of cigarettes. Do you uh go to big do you go to McDonald's and get a big Mac and a large Diet Coke? Skip the Diet Coke, you'll get there. You anyway, know, take a can from home. Uh, there are so many ways to save $22 a week that it is inconceivable that you can't do it. And if you are employed at any, virtually any employer that's very big, you can get a 401k. Do it. Because you know what happens in a 401k? Your company, to some degree or another, matches your contribution. So if they match 100% up to a certain amount, that $22 that you put in is $44 a week. And that ends up being astronomical amounts of money over time. Now you can say, well, what if the stock market goes to zero? First off, it doesn't matter. and it, First off, it won't. And second, it doesn't matter. Uh, if it goes to zero, hope it goes there over the next 10 years instead of over the last 10 years. Because if you keep investing your $22 a week or $44 with, with an IRA, with a 401k, uh, if you invest that money, when the market goes down, you're buying more shares of stock. Which means when it goes back to where it was before, you're actually wealthier than you would have been had the money, had the, had the value of your account stayed the same. Now, one more thing in terms of the, the, what people don't, there is a theory. Called the random walk on Wall Street, and that is that every stock every day is fairly judged. In other words, a million people buy and sell this stock every week, and a lot of them know a whole lot more about it than you, me, or anybody else will, and they have determined this is a fair value. Are they always right? No. Are they better than guessing? Yeah. So you want to diversify to the extent that you get the total gain of the market, which is why the S and P 500 is a good investment for people who want to pay no attention whatsoever. Don't think about safety. Just put your money in it. Forget about it. Don't even look at it. Maybe look at it quarterly. And sooner or later, you'll have enough money to say, wow, I got a lot of money.
0: Yeah. I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize is, uh, First of all, you can have your 401k completely separate, right? Like right now, I don't think where I'm at they've transitioned to having the 401k in there yet, but eventually I'll have that. Look, you can have your 401k, you can contribute to that through your paycheck. It's not taxed, you know. So that's pretty much money that you don't have to worry about. It gets it's like health insurance, you know, 20 bucks out of your paycheck if that and your company matches that. But then on the side, you know, if it, it If you have anything else you're putting it into, especially these days, you know, millennials are saving more money than any generation previously because of your cell phone. Like you can put, I know for a fact, you guys can put 20 to 40 bucks in stocks. You know, if you're 20 years old, you got sober, like at 22, like I did, or 23, you know, 40 years of doing 20 bucks a week in the S&P 500 will be a million when you're 60, you know? And then if you've if you've been doing that same thing with your 401k which by the way you can work at subway and get a 401k McDonald's and get a 401k you know then you've literally that's two million you know if you do forty bucks a week it's four million or four million with both of them your 401k and your own investments on the side the only difference in this is that you're watching people get money quickly and then have the house and have the cars and you feel like you're missing out and, but you're not, it's just like what we were just talking about, like taking like my dad's advice on dealing with difficult people was taking their money, you know, and my advice was just watch, you know, I will prove myself in the long run. Most of these people who make a lot of money aren't wealthy. You know, they're rich. They make a lot of money and they spend a lot of money. Which means they get the momentary satisfaction or the, the, in the moment, the now appeal, right? They get to feel good for a couple days. It's the hedonic treadmill, right? They feel good. And it goes back to something I say all the time. I think we're all kind of junkies of something, right? If you're If you're not using drugs and alcohol to make yourself feel okay, then you're probably using food or material possessions, or something, and this isn't even giving any you any real satisfaction in life. So what will happen is, if you can go work at Subway, open a 401k, put money into that, open a Stash account or Robinhood or Acorns, and put money into that, when you're 60, you'll have millions to fall back on, and these people who have been making money in the process will have nothing. In fact, most of the studies show they'll be in debt. So who really wins in this? You know, and if you know this, it's like the law of attraction. You don't have to wait to feel wealthy and abundant. You can feel wealthy and abundant now just by the way you act, you know? So stop thinking that your success has anything to do with the amount of money you're making right now because time waits for no man, you know? And and the truth is undefeated. You know, there's this... There's this quote I love. The truth is like a lion. You know, you don't, have, you don't have to defend it. You just let it out, and the truth will defend itself. You know, like I, I was talking to my dad about this yesterday. In 2002 or three or whatever it is, when LeBron came into the NBA, a lot of people were talking about whether he was going to be good or not. You know, today, the, there's no more talk of that. He's just good. If you guys slow down... And practice this delayed gratification with putting money in the bank, putting money in investments. The proof is in the pudding, you know. You'll be able to show that you've done what you needed to do and you're successful and you get to live a life that you want to live eventually. You just don't get it now. So, uh, we almost used up this whole time. What Pops, what's the most important things in life to
1: you? Well, the most important things to to me, and obviously it's a little bit different now that I'm getting getting on in years, is my children. I mean, what is it? What is it I have other than that? I mean, I have easily enough money to make several different families well off for their lives. Um, I have a house that I like, which would shock most people if they saw it, because it's a fairly small looking uh, house that's 80 years old, probably three miles from downtown Phoenix. So it's like ghetto dwelling. I drive a uh, 15-year-old pickup truck. Uh, I, I don't care about that. I care about my kids. I care about. Other people's kids, so I'd like a government that doesn't mess things up too much. But as a practical matter, that's all, all there is to it. Uh, one little story. I, I don't know if I ever told Dylan this. I, I was, uh, in my uh, obvious walking a lot, I will be out sometimes in fairly shoddy attire. And I was coming through the parking lot sort of a shortcut back to my house. And these three little cute little black girls came up to me and offered me one of their tacos from Taco Bell because they thought I was homeless. And I now carry cash on me so that if anybody comes up and offers me something because they think I'm poor, I want to reward them. Um, so that's the old, you know, you can't, you can't judge a book by its cover. Never throw never throw Oprah out of your store because she's black. <laughs> yeah, don't judge an
0: engine by its paint job. I, I get Most people, when I talk about my dad, they imagine this thing or this person that has... You look homeless. <laughs> yeah, I always look homeless. <laughs> you look homeless. You don't care about things. And I think that highlights one of the biggest issues is what people care about and what they actually spend time thinking about. You know, um, if you really have a concern for what other people think about you, you're going to have a hard time. If you, you're going to have a hard time in life. You know, if you really care, um, if you're not optimistic, you've already fucking lost. If you're getting out of treatment right now and you're not optimistic for the future, you're going to lose you're just going to lose because first of all there's a network in your brain for pessimism and as soon as you get pessimistic you'll probably act the way you've always acted you know and that's that's part of the problem is that we act in these patterns you know you need to pick and choose what to care about i'm not i'm not saying don't care what people think i'm saying pick and choose who you really care what they think like who is it in your life that you care what they think about you know i care about my, what my wife thinks about i probably too care a little bit too much about what my dad thinks you know i always tell the guys in treatment about this i send you pictures of my food
1: mm-hmm.
0: and i try to think about it on a really deep level and i think the main reason i do it was to show you i'm doing okay Yeah. you know and that's the biggest thing i was talking to you about this yesterday was these moments in your life where you have insane clarity and you think everything is essentially in alignment, right? And and you know what to do. And I think sometimes I struggle with knowing what to do in a moment. And I have to think about certain times in my life and use those memories as leverage. You know, and I was telling you yesterday that one of those moments was when I was at your house, uh, you know. And if you know my story, you know my dad kind of took me over and essentially kidnapped me and put me in his house to try to get me clean. And you looked at me in one point and you said, "If I could put that gun in my mouth and pull the trigger, and it would guarantee you a good and happy life, and I would I would do it without thinking." And every time I think about that, not only do I choke up, I get the goosebumps and I know exactly what to do in the moment. So we're, we're here, 30 seconds left, and I'll leave you with a little quote from Marcus Aurelius. I think you guys already know what to do. You know, the most powerful man in the world 2,000 years ago wrote a quote that said, waste no, time, no more time arguing what a good man should be. Be one. It all comes down to focus in the moment. And choosing what's what to do, We'll see you next time.